Now, you may find this hard to believe, but I had a pretty rebellious streak in high school. And I never did, I never did get into much trouble. I was always too afraid of my mom and my dad for that. But I did try to show that I was different in just about any way I could. While all my friends, we had, my, my classmates had what we call Bama bangs. And uh, that's when you let your hair grow long and you swoop them over to the side. And it seemed like every kid in South Alabama had those, but not me. I had long hair, went down past my shoulders, and I wore it in a ponytail. And while all my friends were listening to, I don't know, country music, hip-hop, whatever, I had discovered Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel and Phil Oaks and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I listened to them on, yeah, exactly, I know some of y'all can relate. I listened to them on records that I found at the thrift store, and I thought I was so cool. You know, I burned incense in my room. Uh, I went the whole way. I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and presented on it in my, my junior year. Um, I, I was totally bought in to that countercultural movement of the 1950s and 60s. You know, I, I was born in 1989, and so by the time I was a teenager, the hippies were long gone, right? Don't not even mention the beats. But for me, they captured something that I really admired. They were these people who believed in something so much that they would go against the grain of what everybody else was doing. They'd march to the beat of their own drum, and they'd do things their way. And so that's kind of what I wanted to be. I wanted to be my own man. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, imitation is suicide, and that's what I set out to do. I'm going to be unique and unlike anyone else. And you can see now by the tie around my neck, that, uh, you know, you grow up and things change. You cut your hair and you have a standing appointment with your barber. And all those things are fine, you know. But I got to thinking about the counterculture this week. You know, counterculture, I don't know about for you, but counterculture typically draws up in our mind destructive forces. People bashing themselves against the status quo. Upending and changing the world. And not always for the better. But... The evaluation of the good or bad of any countercultural movement really has to be examined in light of the culture it's countering. Does that make sense? And I think in this passage, Jesus gives us a couple of values that if we took them seriously, would cause the church to be one of the most destructive countercultural forces in the world today. And it, this passage is not easy. Um, I wrestled with it all week trying to figure out how I was going to present it to you, how I was going to let God's Word speak through this sermon. And the way I've come down on it is I believe that what Jesus is doing in this passage is calling us as his followers to adopt very countercultural values towards the weak and vulnerable. Okay, so that's the main point of today's sermon, that Jesus calls his followers to adopt countercultural values towards the weak and vulnerable. And in the passage, he shows us two of these values. The first value is our attitudes towards marriage. And the attitude Jesus would have, the value towards marriage that he would have us have, is totally at odds with our culture's values towards marriage. And he would have us adopt countercultural values towards children that opposes the world's values at every turn. And so I want you to keep that in your mind. That what Jesus is presenting to his first disciples and then to us today are kingdom values that will put us at odds 
with the culture around us. All right, so if you're with us today for the first time, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, and we finally made it to Mark chapter 10. And uh, Mark chapter 10 is an incredible chapter. It leads right into Mark 11 with Jesus in Jerusalem. And so Mark 10 is kind of the, the hinge from Jesus' ministry to his Passion Week. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at Mark 9, where Jesus has been giving his disciples sort of breadcrumbs and ideas about his coming crucifixion. He knows that as soon as he makes it to Jerusalem, the two and a half years of conflict that's been bubbling underneath the surface with the religious leaders is going to come to a head. And they're going to betray him, and they're going to kill him. And so he's been investing in his disciples. He's been recalibrating them to the kingdom values he wants them to have once he's gone. But Mark tells us in Mark 10 that he crossed over the Jordan River and got back to this earlier style of ministry where crowds gathered around him and he began teaching them and conflict with the Pharisees ensued. You see, it's around the crowds and the religious leaders where Jesus' kingdom values are seen most clearly because they're seen in conflict with the prevailing attitudes of the people around them. And almost immediately, Mark says, as soon as he crossed over the Jordan River and the crowds gather around him, the Pharisees show up to test him. And we see this first value, that where the culture sees marriage as temporary, Jesus asserts its permanence. Jesus asserts its permanence. So the Pharisees ask him here in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Is it lawful? The word lawful means, is it permitted? Is it okay, according to God's law, for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this is a pre prevalent question floating around in Jesus' day, as much as it is in ours. And there were people staking out all sorts of sides on the issue, religious people who were all coming at this question and trying to stake out the permissible grounds for divorce and under what set of circumstances could it be permitted. I think the Pharisees are trying to pull Jesus in to this heated religious conflict. They're trying to get him on the record to have his voice speak up to this issue, to let him lay out his view. I think there's probably another factor. Um, the area across the Jordan is known as Perea, and that's the area, the area where Herod was ruler and tetrarch. And you already know, if you've been with us, that John the Baptist spoke out against Herod and his unlawful marriage to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and that ended up getting John the Baptist beheaded. And so perhaps the Pharisees aren't just thinking about the religious conflict, but they're trying to get Jesus to stick his neck out like John did and speak to Herod's marriage so that they could bring Herod's political power down on him. But regardless, Jesus is uninterested in throwing around his opinion or entering the debate like they would have him do. And so he just sort of brings them back to their common denominator, something everybody can agree on. What, well, what does the Bible say? What does Moses command you? And the Pharisees, being men deeply committed to the authority of the Bible and the law of Moses, knowing it inside and out, they knew exactly what Moses said. In fact, Moses only said one thing about divorce, and he said it in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And since that really provides the launching point for this discussion, I wanted to read what Moses says about divorce from Deuteronomy 24. This is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. 
He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and when he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she's been defiled. For that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. When they tell Jesus, what does Moses command you? Well, they said, hey, Moses says, if you're going to divorce your wife, you've got to give her a certificate of divorce first. They were drawing from Moses' law in Deuteronomy 24, spoken on behalf of God to his people. But I don't know if you noticed how the language shifts in their response. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And then the Pharisees say, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate divorce. Maybe you noticed in Deuteronomy 24 that Moses never says that anyone has to divorce. Thou shalt divorce thy wife. He didn't say that. He takes divorce as a given. That divorce is going to happen, and when this happens, here are the regulations and rules that should govern it among the people of God. Give her a certificate of divorce, and once she's gone... She's not your wife. Don't go thinking y'all can get back together. And so that's what the Pharisees quote. Now, there's another issue with Deuteronomy 24. Moses says if a man finds a matter of indecency with his wife and sends her away. And the rabbis, being sticklers for detail, tried to wrestle with what this indecency might be. Certain Followers of a rabbi named Shammai said that, well, the matter of indecency is clearly adultery. If a woman cheats on her husband, then he can divorce her. But the followers of Rabbi Hillel were more permissive in their views of divorce. They said that the matter of indecency was much broader than simply adultery, that it could be something as simple as serving her husband spoiled food would be grounds for divorce. Or the followers of Rabbi Akaba says, if he finds someone fairer than she is, then he can divorce her. Josephus, the Jewish historian, paraphrased this verse. He says, Moses said, a man's permitted to divorce his wife if he finds some issue arising with her. And among people, many such issues might arise. What, what, what gives? You know, Malachi says in Malachi 2.16 from God's own mouth, I hate divorce, saith the Lord. But when one of the rabbis, Rabbi Jonathan, made his Aramaic translation of the Hebrew text, he translated it, if you hate her, divorce her. Do you get the sort of prevailing cultural winds underneath the surface of this question? Pharisees come to Jesus testing him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? 
And Jesus says, what did Moses command you? And they say, well, Moses permits us to get a certificate of divorce. And it's almost like Jesus is setting them up. Because they know and he knows that the way they're skirting around God's law isn't right. And so Jesus answers them, appealing not to Deuteronomy or to Numbers or to Leviticus or to Exodus, but he goes right back to the beginning, as if the first thing written about man has some kind of priority over the laws that came later. He says, oh no, Moses permitted this commandment because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. According to Jesus, when the Pharisees opened up the law of Moses, they didn't turn to Deuteronomy 24 and find a license for the practice of divorce. What they found was God's gracious limiting of a problem that existed because of sin. Jesus says it's because of your hard-heartedness. Now, hard-heartedness is a spiritual condition. It's used throughout the Old Testament to describe the people of God and their attitude towards God, how they willfully turned away from Him and went their own way, ignoring His commandments. And Jesus said Moses permitted divorce because of their hardness of heart. It was a symptom of brokenness. And what Jesus does is he points beyond that permission to God's original design from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Another common denominator. They all appeal to as the authority. And Jesus said, if you really want to know how God feels about marriage, you have to look there. It's a beautiful story. Maybe you'll read it this week. It's one of the readings in the Followers 5 where God creates this wonderful garden. It's a garden oasis. But there's a problem. There's no one there to work it and keep it. And so he creates the first man, Adam, from dust and breathes breath into his nostrils, and he becomes a living being. And after Adam gets to work, trying to do the task that God's called him to do, he comes up empty-handed because he doesn't have anybody to help him. And so God parades the animals by Adam to see if any helper can be found that's fit for him and none is. And so God says, well, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he put Adam into a deep sleep. And he took out a rib from his body. And from the rib, he didn't create, the Hebrew word's different, he fashioned a woman. When Adam woke up, the woman was there before him. You can hear the, the overwhelming gratitude. At last, bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. That's the thing God's after for marriage. A connection, a oneness, a unity of purpose and heart towards a common mission to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. That's God's design for marriage. Not that you would look for any loophole around Deuteronomy 24 to give yourself an out. That's what Jesus is saying. You want to know what God feels about divorce? You want to know how he feels about your marriages? Don't separate what God has joined together. According to Jesus, God's will for marriage is that it is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. 
mean, he, he makes it like as clear as anyone could. I know that there are lots of questions that people today want to ask and that Jesus just frankly wasn't addressing because they weren't issues in his day. But Jesus identifies God's will for marriage. He says it just like this. This is how it was from the beginning. Anything else is rebellious hard-heartedness against the will of God. And I'm telling you, when he said that, these Pharisees were shocked. No one had ever considered that maybe divorce wasn't an option. Everybody agreed divorce was permissible under the certain set of circumstances. They just disagreed over what circumstances that was. But Jesus seems to say here, don't you get the sense? Jesus seems to say here that divorce is wrong, period. It's shocking. Even his disciples in Matthew 19, when Matthew tells us this story, he says the disciples said this, if a relationship between a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry at all. That was his disciples' attitude. That was his response. It's better not to get married at all. And, and I think many people would agree. I mean, it's not just broken marriages that God hates. It's also loveless marriages. And I read about one man who was celebrating his 50th wedding anniversary, and a reporter asked him, hey, at any point do you think your wife ever considered divorce? He said, no, not divorce. Murder, perhaps. <laughs> and I understand if a relationship between a man and a woman is like this, it's better not to marry at all. And yet, I want you to think about God and what you know about Him. God who loves you, created this world for you, sent His own Son to die for you. How could He command us to do anything that our obedience would bring harm upon us. God commands things for our good. And anyone whose family has been impacted by divorce certainly knows that it's incredibly destructive. It's like an atomic bomb going off in a family tree. Ripples for generations. You know the effect a divorce has on children? You know the effect it has on spouses? The pain single moms go through trying to struggle. The pain single dads go through. Nobody ever walked down a church aisle and stood at the altar in front of their friends and family and said, hey, in 12 to 15 years, we're going to hate each other's guts, divide up all our stuff and go our separate ways. Nobody intends that. And when it happens, it's a travesty. Because God's design... Jesus' kingdom value, the countercultural value that he wants you and me to have, is that when the culture sees marriage as temporary, we're supposed to assert its permanence. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And it is a countercultural value. When you think about the world we live in, I mean, the, do you know the major storyline since August of the National Football League? has been Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchen and what's going on in their marriage. August 11th, he leaves Tampa Bay's training camp for a private personal matter. People are speculating what's really going on. Well, maybe he had a vacation planned or maybe somebody in his family's sick. Maybe he's getting some work done, some plastic surgery. Who knows? But then, slowly but surely, things start to take shape. 
His performance on the football field is terrible. He smashes a couple of Microsoft Surface tablets. His post-game press conferences are chippy. Then Giselle's seen out and about with her kids without a ring on, and it starts to become clear so that last week they announced their divorce is finalized. Now, the crazy thing is, the only reason it's newsworthy is because it's Tom Brady. That in 2020, 630,000 marriages ended in divorce in America. In 2019, 746,000. Happens every day, apparently to thousands of people. They sign on the dotted line and divorce is finalized. And when some group of people somewhere start saying, hey, maybe this isn't the way God intended things to be, maybe he's got a better plan for your life than this, maybe they start coming under fire a little bit, feeling the heat of culture. It's easy for us as Christians. If you've been alive or around for 10 years, you know how, how drastically marriage has changed in our country. 2015, Obergefell, Supreme Court, finds a constitutional right for same-sex marriages. Christians everywhere lost their minds. Redefining marriage. But I read this crazy book called The, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by the church historian Carl Truman. And he talks about Obergefell and how big of a deal that's been in our culture. But he makes the argument that, that that's not where marriage was redefined. And marriage was redefined in 1970. And the governor of California, a guy named Ronald Reagan, signed the country's first no-fault divorce law into law. That's where marriage was redefined. That's not God's intention. And our culture has gone along with it in lockstep, following it to the next, to the next, to the next step. I even saw somebody this week, a, a marriage therapist on Twitter, was saying, hey, let's get rid of that phrase in our marriage vows, till death do us part. And let's just say, hey, until this no longer feels safe, healthy, and fulfilling for us. Let's just go into it. I saw a response that said, yeah, that's exactly right. That's why me and my husband in our vows, we said, as long as we both want this. And I just want to be the voice, maybe of one crying out in the wilderness. <laughs> maybe I don't know what I am. But I just want to say that there is a better way. God has a better way than that. Now, I get it. There, I, you don't know how many couples I've sat across the table with in loveless marriages with deeply broken personal sins. I've encouraged women who are in abusive situations to get out and get safe. Okay, Jesus has lots to say about adultery, and I would also include underneath that heading abandonment. Paul talks about if you're a Christian and your husband leaves you and he's not a Christian, maybe you just let him go. Okay. There's lots of circumstances where divorce would be understandable, and I'd get behind you 100%. But hear the word of the Lord. There's a better way. And I think maybe what Jesus would call us to do today as his followers is to recommit ourselves to marriage as he intended it, to a loving marriage a partnership towards a common goal of glorifying God with our lives. To consider what Paul says in Ephesians 5, where he quotes the same passage Jesus does. He says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their wives as their own bodies. We need to recommit ourselves to this vision. Where men don't think, hey, when would it be okay for me to leave my wife? If she spoils my dinner? If I find somebody younger and prettier than her? No. I'm laying down my rights, giving up my permissions. I'm going to love my wife as Jesus loved the church. That's what we need to do. We need to recover that vision. And then we need to prepare to help people find restoration and healing from the atomic bomb of divorce in their life. See, that Jesus had a lot to say about the unforgivable sin, and I just want to remind you, divorce wasn't it. There's mercy and grace for people whose marriages have fallen apart. There's mercy and grace for people who were caught in the act of adultery. Jesus stoops down and writes in the dirt and tells the woman, where are your accusers? They've all disappeared. Well, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. What about the woman at the well? Bring your husband. No, I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have a husband. You've had four husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Jesus has mercy and grace for people who have experienced the brokenness of divorce, and we ought to, as his followers, help people find healing and restoration after they walk through that dark season of life. To remind them that God still has a plan for them, your life's not over, that God can restore and he can heal and he can produce in you the kind of love that you wish you had. We're his people and we're here with you the whole time. That's the kind of countercultural value Jesus would have us place on marriage. The culture says it's temporary, we say it's permanent and we live like it. But here's a second value. When the culture says that children are worthless, Jesus commands us to welcome them. That's where he picks up in verse 13. It's almost like these parents are interrupting the discussion, which I'm sure Jesus was thankful for. It's like, finally, I can get off of this and mess with these kids, right? He says, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me and don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Now I know you love this passage. I love this passage. I hope you have this scene in your mind. Here Jesus is with these respectable religious leaders debating the finer points of the law and divorce. And the disciples see parents filing through, pressing in with children, the Greek words, Pretty expansive. It can mean all the way down to infants, but the 12-year-old girl um, that Jesus raised from the dead back in Mark chapter 5, it's the same word. So maybe it's an infant all the way up to a teenager. And yet Jesus takes them in his arms, so maybe it is babies. But regardless, the disciples see these families pressing through the throngs to get up to the front. And they are, you know, self-important self-appointed gatekeepers. I like to think of them as the guys who manage Jesus' calendar for him, reminded him where he's supposed to go and what he's supposed to do. And so when they see these families coming with these kids, they stand in the way, self-appointed gatekeepers. 
No. Take, get these kids away from the teacher. He's got too much going on. He's too important. He's having a serious discussion. Can't you see? Get the kids out of here. In the ancient world, children weren't the innocent angels that we view them as today. We don't, you know, we look at them and we giggle and chuckle. In the ancient world, man, they just sort of threw them to the side. And it's uh, strange to think about it this way, but think about it from their perspective. Children didn't really contribute to the family economy. They weren't big enough yet to have any real role in the business that the family was doing. Um, they're just another mouth to feed. And often they didn't make it out of childhood. They might would die young. And so they weren't really valued as an essential part of the family. They didn't bring the family honor. It's not like they're out in the world making a name for themselves and saying, hey, I'm the son of so-and-so, and I'm here to do business. You know? They didn't bring honor. Instead, they got runny noses and dirty diapers, and people always have to be fumbling with them and keeping them interested in something. And so they were just sort of pushed away. According to Roman law, fathers could um, turn their children away when they were born. And they often did, especially if they were girls. They'd leave them out in the weather to die. Sometimes those children would be gathered up and sold into slavery of some kind, either to be a gladiator in the gladiatorial games or to work as a prostitute or all sorts of things. Children just weren't very highly prized. And apparently the disciples had sort of taken up that mindset without really considering if it reflected Jesus' values. So when these parents bring these kids, they just they rebuke them. The, the word actually means to express strong disapproval, to warn them. Come on, guys, you know better than this. Get those kids away from Jesus. And when Jesus hears it and sees it, he gets mad. The, the, literally, it's worth looking at again. He says in verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He should get stirred up about something because you know it's wrong that righteous indignation that you and I wish we had um, more often. Instead, you know, it's just like we have petty anger. Jesus was righteously indignant. He was mad because he knew what the disciples do, were doing was wrong. He said, no, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I mean, what, what's going on here? Why would the disciples think about children in this way. I mean, already Jesus had told them back in chapter 9 that if anyone wants to be first, he should be last of all and a servant of all. Mark says, taking a child, he set him before them and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child like this in my name receives me. And here they are rejecting them, not welcoming them, turning them away, rebuking their parents. Get away from here. And what they're doing is they're showing their real colors. That however long they've spent with Jesus, they haven't quite adopted the mind of Christ. They're still thinking with the world's value system about children. Jesus says, don't turn them away. These kids aren't worthless. They're not a distraction to the real work that I'm doing. These kids should be welcomed. Welcome them. I love our kids in here. Do you all like seeing that? I don't know if y'all remember this. We, I was talking to Pastor Jerry this week about what they're doing. I mean, they're averaging like 30 kids and Jesus kids every week, and now they've got like 8 to 10 babies in the nursery. And I remember when I first got here, um, we had like maybe 8 kids. And they were special kids. Two of them were my kids. So you know I loved them. 
And I, I remember having conversations with Amy and the kids' ministry team about, man, what could God do in Luling, Texas with kids? And you, you start to think about new elementary schools being built and families moving into town and all the opportunities. And you just know that if Jesus were here, what would he say? He'd say, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. That's why I love serving this church. I mean, many of y'all have kids who are grown and gone. You know what I'm saying? That it's a long time ago that you were changing pampers and you're glad to be out of that stage. I get it. 100%. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your financial generosity. If I could be as crass as to say it that way. Thank you for giving to the ministry of this church. Because in doing that, what you're doing is you're putting your resources where God's heart is. That God loves kids. And many churches have died because they said kids are too much of a problem. We don't want them around here. They're disobedient. They don't know how to act in church. They're always sneezing and sniffling and giving people germs. You've got to have people to work back there, and none of us want to do it. They said it's too much work. I wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that. I don't know about you. I want to be a part of what Jesus values. Jesus says kids aren't worthless. You ought to welcome them. Make them feel right at home. And not only that, imitate them. Imitate them. And these disciples look at these kids and they see something that embodies every value that they lack. The disciples are full of self-importance. They've got a, a healthy religious resume, all the places they've gone and things they've done, the sermons they've preached, the demons they've cast out, the things they've seen Jesus do. And these kids are being carried by their parents. They've got nothing to commend them to Jesus. They are needy and weak and helpless. And yet those are the very people Jesus is looking for. He says, unless you become like them, Unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you won't enter it at all. He'd have the disciples look at these kids and not just see a ministry opportunity, but to see the embodiment of the very values Jesus wanted to produce in them. They would come to him open-handed and helpless and ask for his blessing instead of trying to convince him that they're worth it. And so I encourage you that every week we see these kids, and they're cute, and they're a handful, Sometimes they're disobedient, and sometimes they're rowdy, and sometimes they're disrespectful to our building, to our leaders, to their parents. And yet every week they show us ourselves that we're often difficult, we're often needy, we're often committed to our own way, and when it, we don't get it, we cry. And Jesus says, You're the, that's the kind of people I'm looking to bless. So let go of the self-importance. Remember to welcome those kids. Church, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for people who are so committed to these countercultural values that they take root in us and they shine for the whole world to see. The Holy Spirit wants to work those into us. I mean, I know y'all are going to go home today and you're going to continue the riveting discussion around divorce. 
You're going to try to take it to heart, and you're going to try to share it with somebody this week, right? No, it probably is not going to show up in our talk. It's probably going to show up in our lives. That if we really understand what Jesus is saying, we are going to adopt the value, and we're going to treat marriage as permanent and not temporary. And so I challenge you. Let me ask you a question. If you're married... Would you say your marriage embodies the values of the kingdom that we've seen today or not? Would you say that you and your spouse, you and your partner, you and your wife, you and your husband, however you think about them, would you say y'all are wholeheartedly together, committed to God's will for your life? Would you say that you pretty much hate each other's guts and put up with each other or the kids? This morning, Jesus is trying to speak clearly to you. There's a better way. There's a better way. He wants to work in you to produce in you the will of God for your marriage, that you love each other and act like it. I wonder, do you know someone who's broken because of their marriage? Either a marriage that's ended or is ending. There's someone in your life that you could love this week, that you could acknowledge that divorce is terrible, and it always has a thousand contributing factors, and if anyone could go back and redo things, they would. But Jesus has called you to love them, to care for them, to pray for them. I'd encourage you to do that this week. We've got to remember to value and welcome children. And I wonder, do you need to repent of your attitude towards kids? You need to take a long, hard look about how you think about them. Maybe they're your kids, grandkids. Maybe they're our kids who sit up here on the front. Maybe you wish we didn't let them come in for the first song because they're distracting. There's certainly been weeks where I have second-guessed the decision. Do you see them as the valuable individuals made in the image and likeness of God, each one with a whole future in front of them, a purpose and plan divinely designed? That every week they're here in big church and Jesus' kids, they're receiving seeds, the gospel learning the basics about who Jesus is and the life he's called us to live. But they're also observing our lives. When they see us in worship, they're understanding what it means to be the people of God gathered in his presence. When they see us standing and reading the scriptures, they see us attentive to the word of God. When they see us interact with our friends, they see what it means to be in healthy relationship with others. When they see us interact with our spouses, they see what it looks like to be in a healthy marriage, even if their home life is a wreck. When they're here, they're observing the way of God's people. And how could you get involved in making a bigger difference in their life? People who adopt kingdom values welcome kids. See them as more than worthless. Will you pray with me?